just kidding. All right, if you need a handout, Damon's passing them out. Since we're going to talk about missionaries, I figured we'd let the missionary pass stuff out. Isn't the fellowship hall decorated so nicely for my Sunday school class? Isn't it great? Might be for the ladies thing, but and they took down the clock, so that's it's great. I don't need more time. It's not that, but I'm just curious why. So I'll be looking at my phone to get the time more often. Um, okay, we're all seated. All right, let's. Today we're going to talk about, as you can see on your handout, last. Uh, we're going to talk about the Salvation Army because we didn't get to that last week, uh, the founding of the Salvation Army, as we talked about how the church uh, impacted culture in uh, the 19th century. And then we're going to talk a little bit today about the modern missionary movement, some of the you know, forerunners to the modern missionary movement, which occurred in the really its heyday was in the 19th century. Uh, we'll talk about William Carey a little bit. I, I spent a lot of time on him. Uh, last time we got together for these sessions, and uh, but I wanted to go ahead and review some of his important works, and then we'll talk about the founding of missionary societies, which helped propel the church into missions efforts in the 19th century. Uh, we'll touch on uh, missions in the United States a little bit, um, and then next week I'd like to just take a little bit of time to discuss two missionaries, Hudson Taylor and David Livingston. I kind of want to compare and contrast the two of them, the way they um, how they were uh, missionaries for the Lord. Uh, David Livingston was in Africa, and he was kind of the explorer slash missionary, which is pretty cool to think about as a guy. And um, Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China, China Inland Mission. And uh, I have a son named Hudson, so I have a uh, great affinity for Hudson Taylor. Um, let's Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I think it's appropriate that we... Uh, read the Great Commission as we consider uh, missions and uh, the followers of the Lord and welcome Brent's Sunday School class. Uh, Damon has handouts, so okay, they're working their way around. All right, if you guys can turn to Matthew 28, please. We're going to read the Great Commission. And this is the obviously the scripture, the great missionary scripture that propelled many to follow the Lord as to become missionaries. Matthew 28, verse 16 through 20. We'll read this scripture and then we'll pray. All right, so this is Jesus after he's resurrected and he's giving his last marching orders to his disciples. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and we worship you, Lord, because we are a needy people and we need your grace to us, to be provided to us, Lord, and we Thank you, Lord, that we get to study the history of your church, Lord. It gives us an opportunity to see how you have been working through the ages to build your church, Lord. We know that is what your 
goal is, Lord, to bring many people um, to yourself to worship you. So, Lord, help us be worshipers of you today, Lord. May we see you as more glorious as we study your church. Lord, as we consider those that have sacrificed much uh, for your glory um, and to become missionaries as proclaimers of your truth to the unreached peoples of the earth, Lord, I pray that we would see you as the driving force behind them, Lord, that we would see you as propelling them and encouraging them to do those things for your name. Lord, all that was done for your glory, so we pray that this would be done as well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we talked about uh, the church and um, Christians' role in some of the societal issues going on in England. We talked about um, the formation of Sunday schools and how that impacted the youths of the day. We talked about um, the foundation of the YMCA and how that helped um, industrial workers um, come to faith and to have a community, a fellowship of brethren. And then we talked about William Wilberforce as the the leader politician Christian who um, led against the abolition or led for the abolition of the slave trade in England and in the British Empire. Uh, one significant um, social thing we did not talk about last week that I wanted to get to, which we'll get to today, is the Salvation Army. Um, and that's the first point on your notes here, that the Salvation Army was founded in 1864. Um, it was initially called the East London Company, or East London Mission, then it was revised as it grew out of London to the Christian Mission, and then it was called the Salvation Army. So the Salvation Army was founded by a man and his wife by the name of William Booth and his wife, Catherine. So William Booth, in 1864, founded the Salvation Army. William Booth was an evangelist, a revivalist, and the Salvation Army sprung up out of their revival meetings, their revivals emphasized um, William Booth's animated preaching, um, and they sung hymns to contemporary tunes, which was pretty, um, um, I guess, uh, a change for the day. And also, Catherine, his wife, preached as well. So that was unique, probably wrong, uh, but that was something they did. Um, and the things that they did as they went and preached in the community, um, those specific things often offended the traditional church. But it brought many people, um, they preached the gospel, and many became followers of Christ because of their work. Um, not only did they preach, though, they also allowed for those who had been converted from difficult life circumstances, um, maybe people that were uh, involved with you know, alcoholism or um, um, people that were boxers of the day or gamblers, um, they would encourage them as they became believers to become active preachers in their, um, in their revival work. Um, and they, uh, they would call this group as they traveled the Hallelujah Band. They weren't playing music necessarily, but the band was Booth, uh, William Booth, Catherine Booth, and these several different uh, people who had had a difficult past who had come to faith. Um, but as they were having these revival meetings, they determined that the social horrors of the day were um, great, and that there was a great need for people to um, be provided certain services. So they saw the horrors of alcoholism, prostitution, and poverty, and how that impacted the culture. 
So their goal, as they preached, was to reach the impoverished and unchurched urban masses in London primarily. They determined that social needs were so great that they needed to address those first in order to create an opening for the gospel. So they did several things. This is the list you have there, number two. Um, they started um, soup kitchens. Some of this stuff is still around today, obviously, and to a greater scale. They provided housing. Um, medical stations. Job training. Legal assistance sold coal at low cost, interesting to think about, to keep people warm. They visited prisons and had established children's ministries. So they kind of ran the gamut of social ills of the time, and they were giving aid to people for that. Uh, William Booth thought that those to whom he preached could not concentrate on the message because they had empty stomachs. They couldn't hear it because of the growling of their stomachs. So he emphasized these soup kitchens before he would bring his gospel message. One rallying cry for the Salvation Army at the time was, soup, soap, and salvation. <laughs> kind of their idea of getting people clean, feeding them, and preaching the gospel to them. Um, so not, in 1878 is actually when the name changed to the Salvation Army. And it kind of came out, kind of as a joke between Booth and his children because they said, hey, we were like, we're building up an army of volunteers here that want to go in and assist and help people. And so they started calling themselves the Army. They're like, they're going to call themselves the Volunteer Army. But if their main message was to preach the gospel, uh, Booth found it more appropriate that they be called um, the Salvation Army because that was their emphasis. Um, and at that time, volunteers were given military ranks and uniforms, so they could be identified. Uh, one of their mottos was blood and fire, the blood of the lamb and, the fi and fire from the Holy Ghost. They also used, at this time, as it evolved, uh, a brass band to attract many to their, follow to, their, uh, to, their, to their revivals. So I think you see that some today in Salvation Army uh, stuff, that there's a band um, in some of their their uh, social activism of today. Um, in 1884, so it was founded in 1864. In 1884, they had established um, 970 church spots where they were in England, and they had 2,300, or outside of England too, 2,332 officers. So within 20 years, it was a huge organization. Um, it was pretty controversial, though, because many people, um, as they were, providing for people in these, uh, their so the social ills they were impacted by as they were providing for them and preaching for them. People were turning away from those things that had so easily, they'd become entangled in. And there's a group of people that opposed them and was kind of um, out to make sure that they were not successful, and they called themselves the Skeleton Army. It's kind of the rivals of the Salvation Army. So the Salvation Army was greatly persecuted by these, and these are people that were benefiting from alcohol and gambling and prostitution. So the Salvation Army was directly affecting their bottom line. Um, the Salvation Army came to America in 1880, um, and it's obviously still in existence today. Catherine, the wife of William, died in 1890. 36,000 people attended her funeral. 
Um, William Booth died in 1912 after the army had become nearly a worldwide organization. Towards the end of his life, he met with kings and presidents, and he also returned to his first love, which was itinerant preaching. So like the last few years of his life, he made these tours of England preaching the need, the gospel, and also the need to reform society and to preach towards the social ills of the day. Uh, Salvation is still today one of the largest charitable organizations in the world. It is the second largest charity in America. Didn't research what the first is. It might be the United Way. I don't know. Um, the, it is the fifth largest in the United Kingdom. And in 2010, its claim to membership is 16,938 active uh, officers with about 9,000 that are retired, over 1.1 million soldiers, or people that are um, employed by the Salvation Army, um, and roughly 4.5 million volunteers worldwide. So it's a very impactful organization still today. Um, probably emphasizing the social aspect of it today less than the gospel. But if you look at their, um, their I guess, uh, prince guiding principles or their, the things that drive them, the gospel is stated as uh, the primary thing. Interesting enough, too, the Salvation Army, there's a political point here, too, but the Salvation Army is the largest non-governmental provider of social services in the world. And it receives cash donations in the United States upwards of $2 billion each year. So it's a huge, huge organization. And it started in this time because of the situation, the culture of the time in, in the 1900s, because there was such a, a need for people's lives to be changed because they were living in such dire conditions. Um, but you can see this is an example of the church and believers impacting the culture around them. So that was the, that's the end of last week's lesson, so we can move on now uh, to number three on your points. Uh, now we're going to talk about foreign missions. The 19th century is the great century for missions. Okay, so let's just think about, let's review. We're going to review back to 1492. So 1492 is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? So the world is expanding, right? It's no longer a westernized culture or the Middle East. It's, it's expanding. There's new places being found. 1517 is the year of the Reformation, right? It's when Martin Luther begins the Reformation by nailing the 95 Theses on the church door at the Church of Wittenberg, and the church is no longer the same. Um, So that's the 1500s. Um, And in the 1500s, due to the, um, I guess, the shift from the emphasis of being the Roman Catholic, uh, Catholic Church being the main church, and there being a shift to Protestantism, the uh, Roman Catholic Church became greatly involved in expanding its um, emphasis through worldwide missions. So that's number three. The Roman Catholic Church was the first to spread its beliefs throughout the world. So the Catholic Church was greatly weakened by the Reformation, obviously, because many people were moving away from the faith. Uh, So they used, the church used the um, influence of several large Catholic countries to spread its message abroad. Um, the first, those countries would include Spain, France, and Portugal. So the Roman Catholic Church is the first missionaries, not the Protestant Church. Um, Jesuits and Dominican priests were missionaries, and the Jesuits 
were key, and they were the most effective missionary priests because they emphasized adapting to the culture of those they were attempting to reach. Um, there was mission work done both in um, New Mexico, in the Spanish uh, settlements in the United States, and also in New France, which would represent Canada, um, and also parts of the middle part of America. Let's see. There were several. One of the great missionaries uh, actually was to Japan. Was a a, uh, a Catholic missionary. His name was Francis Francis Xavier. He went as a missionary to Japan and to India. And there was also great mission work to the Native Americans as these as these uh, countries uh, became interested in exploration of and colonization of the New World. The French explorer Louis Joliet took Father Jacques Marquette. It's fun to say. With him on his journey to the Midwest of America, and Marquette sought the souls of the Illinois Indians. Um, like I said, the most impacting Catholic missionaries were the Jesuits. Um, there's this idea, and you kind of can see this through the first couple hundred years of missionary work, is that in order to be, be successful, the missionaries needed to convert the people to the culture of the day that, that was going on in Europe. You needed to be culturized. That was part of it. But the Jesuits adapted to the culture of the people they were ministering to and reached out to them with their view of the gospel and to find adherence. Um, as I said, it was really necessary for the Roman Catholic Church to look globally for more converts. Since post-Reformation, they had lost so many parishioners, and in a lot of Europe, their influence had waned significantly. So they're looking to expand their territories. So the Roman Catholic Church is the first worldwide missions organization. However, the Protestants quickly follow. Um, one of the reasons why the Protestants was, were slower to mission work is we're trying to determine exactly who we are as Protestants. We need to know what we believe. You know, there's the, the early emphasis of Protestantism, obviously, is to develop a theology and an understanding of what the scriptures are. And also, it is to get the scriptures into the language of the people there in those countries, like in Germany or in England or in France or in Geneva. Um, it was necessary that the Bible be translated so they could properly understand it and be in the hands of the people. So the Protestants were slow because of those reasons, but as the Protestant movement developed and matured, there was more of an emphasis on worldwide missions. In the 1600s, as settlers went from France to Brazil, uh, there was a group of Protestant French Huguenots that were sent as missionaries from Geneva. In the 17th century as well, number four on your list, one of the more powerful Protestant powers was the Netherlands. Um, and it's actually the 17th century, the Netherlands actually experienced its golden age and became a great world power. And as they went and found colonies, wherever the Dutch went, their missionaries went as well. And in, the, their col in their colonial efforts in Indonesia, they coined the term church planting. That's number four. They coined the phrase church planting during their efforts in Indonesia. Now, some of that was to minister to the colonials, and some of it was to minister to the people of the land. There was a man in the Netherlands at the time who was a I don't have this in your notes, though, but he was a precisionist. And a, the precision movement in the Netherlands is similar to the Puritan movement in England. And in the 17th century, he wrote a theology emphasizing 
missions. So he was one of the first Protestants to emphasize the need for missions. He was the first to emphasize the Great Commission to the church. There's this thought in the church, and even to some degree, um, Calvin would believe this, uh, one of the reformers, that the gospel call, what we read for the Great Commission, was strictly for um, the apostles and for the disciples. There's, there's a debate about that at the time, um, that that was Jesus' marching orders to the apostles. So there wasn't, the thought was, maybe we don't need to go everywhere and into all the earth to preach the gospel. However, in the Netherlands with Gisbertos Vodius, he changed that idea. Um, so many people, as uh, Protestantism grows and as new lands are founded, uh, there's more opportunities for people to minister to uh, locals in foreign lands. There was many Puritan missions in the, sixth, in the 17th century to the Native Americans. This is number five on your list. Um, they were very successful in, in uh, ministering to the Native Americans. Uh, one such person was John Eliot, who in 1631 served as a pastor locally, but he also witnessed and evangelized to the local natives. He translated the Bible into the Indian language of Algonquin, which is actually the first Bible printed in the United States. Uh, he produced the grammar for the people and taught them how to read. Um, his emphasis on the Bible lays out a key trait for Protestant missionaries going forward. Um, one of the things that you'll see as we talk about Protestant missions is it's all about getting the Bible into the language of the people so they can understand it and they can read it. And in some cases, especially Eliot here, not only did you have to develop a language, a written language, you had to teach them how to read it. You had to develop even a grammar of how to do it. So it's not like you can just take two books and translate it, you know. It was very difficult, but these guys showed much persistence. Uh, so John Elliott's number one is the first one on number five. The second is the Mayhew family in Martha's Vineyard who served the uh, natives um, in Massachusetts for five generations. And the most famous uh, Puritan missionary to the Native Americans was only there for five years. His name is David Brainerd. His labels, excuse me, his labors and trials were recorded by Jonathan Edwards in his posthumous biography of, his, of this young believer. Brainerd's biography did not outline a great missionary strategy, but what it did do is it showed a life wholly committed to God and a great concern for the gospel being taken to the Native Americans. Um, and most missionaries in the 19th century um, credit David Brainerd's biography with propelling them um, along with God's work in their life, obviously, to missions. Because it was um, an amazing work by Edwards to put that forward. Um, and then after David Brainerd's death, his brother John continued on in his labors to the Native Americans. So there's, there's some missionary work going on here in the areas where uh, there was significant uh, colonial activity by the Protestant nations. Uh, one group that we've touched on several times is the Moravians. I didn't put a note in here for them, but they are the major group, um, I guess denomination per se, um, pioneering missions in the 16th and 1600s and in the 1700s. By the end of the uh, 1700s, half of all missionaries serving overseas were Moravians. Moravians aren't this, it's a pretty small church, but they're serving um, this, uh, the, the worldwide community. The Moravians went to Africa, Asia, Greenland, 
Lapland, the Arctic, the Caribbean, and to the American Indians. So they're all over the place. In 1735, Moravian missionaries were sent to Georgia. Included on that was an unsaved man by the name of John Wesley, um, who later became a believer uh, by the uh, ministry of the Moravians. But their efforts uh, were in colonial America as well. Um, in 1808, one Moravian missionary by the name of David Zeisberger died. What was interesting about when he died, though, is he completed, he had been a missionary for 63 years to the American Indians, which is the longest tenured missionary in church history. So this kind of setting the background for, these are the people that are the first missionaries from, for the Protestant cause. Um, and the next pe person we're going to talk about is one man. Um, his name is William Carey. Number six. William Carey lived from 1761 to 1834, and he is considered the father of modern missions. He was a Baptist. He was also employed as a shoemaker in England. And he was heavily influenced by the evangelical revival of the 18th century. So it's the Whitfield Wesley revivals in England at the time. Um, his missionary zeal was explained in a work that he wrote in 1792. It's called An Inquiry into the Obligations of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of Heathens. And in that book, he outlines a cross-cultural outreach with a single-minded missionary purpose, according to one historian. And his goal was to see the locals in um, these um, British colonies come to faith in Christ. He didn't see it as some kind of way for them to advance the colonial um, economic well-being of the nation. He saw it solely as an opportunity to grow God's church. Um, in 1792, he preaches prior to going to India. He preached a sermon on Isaiah 54, 2, and 3, which he made his well-known quote. Some of you guys know this, I'm sure. It says, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Um, that was that's kind of his driving motto as he uh, went forward. He founded a missionary society, which there's a blank for this later, but I have this here too. It's called the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Amongst the Heathen. Okay, so he's a particular Baptist. Um, we've talked before. This time in England and other places, there's the Baptists have come on the, on the stage, I guess you'd say. And there's two groups of Baptists. There's particular Baptists and there's general Baptists. General Baptists are more Arminian in their theology. Particular Baptists are more Calvinistic in their, um, in their uh, theology. Uh, William Carey was a particular Baptist. He was a Calvinist. However, even in that work, he had to, um, being a particular Baptist, he had to convince those in his own church that it was appropriate for believers to go forth with the message of the gospel. Um, as he proclaimed to his church that he was leaving, one of the leaders of the church asked him, said, or said to him something to the effect like, what, if God really wants to save those people, he'll do it. He doesn't need you to do it. And, uh, but as you can see by the work, the name of the book that Carey wrote, it's an inquiry into the use of means. God uses means. He uses people um, to spread the gospel. How are they here without a preacher? He's the preacher. And uh, that was the driving force behind his life. And so he not only had to um, 
convince people that he needed to go into worldwide missions, even those that he uh, w was with, you know, the people that were in his church had to agree with him um, to some degree. So William Carey went to India, which was a great um, uh, colonial effort by the, the British Empire. Um, and he didn't go as part of the large British East India Company, but he went with uh, some Danish settlers because the British um, East India Company feared that he might rock the boat. Now, he's going to be preaching Jesus here, but these people are they're, they're satisfied in their religion as it is. We don't want you to talk about Jesus and their need for repentance and their need that they're sinners when we need them to trade with. You know, that was the emphasis here for the British East India Company. So there's actually some animosity towards William Carey by the uh, British colonial leaders. Uh, he went to a place called Sarampore, India, where he was joined by two other men, Joshua Marshman, and a, a teacher, and a man by the name of William Ward, who was a printer. He's got a teacher, a preacher, and a printer. It's important to know. Um, let's see. Their work was not easy. Carey wrote to his supporters in England that there were obstacles all around, so there was no alternative to them but to move ahead with the project at hand. So it's really difficult. We're not going to be able to do anything, but we've got to keep working, was his goal here. Um, Carey and his partners emphasized three things. Number seven. Number one, evangelism. I think that's obvious. Uh, preaching the uh, good news to those that were there. Two, church planting. And the third one is Bible translation. This is a reoccurring theme in Protestant missionary work, is the translation of the Bible into the language of the people. Um, Carey himself was uniquely gifted in languages. Um, by the time he died, he had translated all or part of the Bible into 35 different languages. Just an amazing, amazingly gifted individual in that sense. Um, uh, Carey's work during his lifetime did not produce an extraordinarily amount of converts, but he laid the foundation for future generations of missions to come and see a bountiful harvest of souls. Carey's faith was inspirational to the coming century, which is referred to as the great century for missions. And because of his work, many missionary societies were founded just because of his stories and the work that he was doing there. People were greatly, Carey himself was enraptured by foreign lands. So I said he was a shoemaker earlier. This is before he becomes a missionary. He sat there as a shoemaker with a big map in front of him, and all he could think about was the opportunity to take the gospel to other foreign lands. So people were intrigued. They wanted to hear these stories of people that had gone to foreign lands and what work was going on at the time. So William Carey was the one that helped uh, propel that even further. Uh, but that's just kind of the result of that time and that age. So the next thing I want to talk about, so that's William Carey. He's the father of modern missions, and he founded a missionary society. But they continue to found other missionary societies in England and throughout the world. Um, that's number eight. God inspired many people through Carey's pioneering work, and many societies were founded. These include number one, 17, oops, did I give you a date? 17, nine, no. Excuse me. That is 1792. This is the particular Baptist society for propagating the gospel among the heathen. They're not all that long. Just put particular Baptist society for missions. That's good. 
1795, another one was founded. It was called the London, before I go there, William Carey's organization was changed, so maybe this is what I was thinking, to the Baptist Missionary Society in England. 1795, another missionary society was formed. It was called the London Missionary Society, and it was founded by several different uh, leading denominations, including Methodists, Congregationalists, Evangelical Anglicans, and Presbyterians. So you see several denominations coming together in these missionary societies. Um, they sent missionaries to Africa, Madagascar, China, uh, Samoa, and Australia. Um, and included in these were Robert Morrison, who is the first Protestant missionary to China, a man by the name of John Abbs to India in 1837, a man by the name of James Leggy, who was a missionary to China, and then came back from the mission field and became Oxford's first professor, professor of Chinese, and then the great David Livingston, who is the, the missionary explorer of Africa, who we'll talk about next week. So all those are the result of the uh, London Missionary Society, um, which lasts still in existence today um, under a different name. Uh, and then the third one would be, in 1799, the Church Missionary Society was established. And they were primarily uh, formed by the evangelical wing of the Anglican Church. And many of its founding members were of what we call the Clatham sect, which is what we said last week for, that Wilberforce was a part of. William Wilberforce was part of this group of evangelical Anglicans who wanted to change culture, who wanted to see that the gospel was in all of life. And they started up societies that helped the poor, helped the needy in London, helped against the slave trade, and also uh, foreign missions work, as we can see, because they established the Church Missionary Society. Um, they were influenced greatly by the great evangelical Anglican pastor by the name of Charles Simeon. They sent missionaries to Ethiopia and to India. Um, I don't have this as one of your missionary societies, but this is a society that came up as well. Uh, but it's called the British and Foreign Bible Society. It was also established in 1804. And its aim was to disseminate Bibles all over the world in the language of the people. It was non-denominational still exists today as an international body to see that the, the Bible is placed in the hands of everybody in the world. A couple things about these societies. Um, number one, uh, this is number nine on your list, these societies were not just made on denominational lines at the beginning at least. There, you saw the coming together of denominations to see uh, for the greater goal of missions and to see uh, Christ exalted. Um, because on the mission field, the controversies of European Christianity seemed minor in comparison to the struggle to win the soul of the heathen. So Protestants banded together where there was great resources together. Um, these um, organizations were also voluntary, and they drew support from both individuals and churches. There was widespread support by the public. They did not, for the most part, have any support of the state. So these are churches and individuals not sponsored by the state, unlike most likely the Roman Catholic efforts of the 1500s or the Dutch Reformed efforts of the 1600s. These were supported by the public. People were giving money to these organizations to see that the church would grow through the efforts of the mission work. And people were ready to give because they were completely enamored by the work going on in foreign lands. 
So we didn't have we have, we have a lot of entertainment now. So the if you hear stories from missionaries now, they have to compete against movies, they have to compete against books, whatever else, the internet, whatever. But at that time, the news coming from missionaries overseas was the most exciting thing. Um, so people were ready to give because they were able to hear of the great work that went on at that time. Um, so that these the establishment of societies helped propel missions into the, into the 1800s. Um, let's, so where's America in all this, right? It's a good question. What's the American church doing in the missions work in the 1800s? Um, in 1810, I don't know if this is the right date. I think I might have put that down wrong. Don't put that date down. There was, at, somewhere around there, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions came about due to the Second Great Awakening in New England. So we talked about the Second Great Awakening for two weeks. We talked about Finney, and we talked about um, the revival on the East Coast with the, the universities. This is kind of the one of the results of that. And it, this uh, society was formed by a group of students at Williams College in Massachusetts who had begun to pray that God would send them as foreign missionaries and that he would provide financial support and a board of leaders to support them and that he would bring an overall missionary vision to the American church. At this time, there had not been any American foreign missionaries. So as, as they met together to pray, their prayers became more intense. And then at one point, as they were walking together by a river or whatever, there's this huge haystack over here, and the storm comes out of nowhere. And they, sheik, sheik, they seek shelter in this haystack. And they all come together, and they pray, and they're like, hey, this, we were getting together to pray anyway. Let's pray right now while we're getting protected from the storm. And they call this the Haystack Prayer Meeting. This is number 10. And at this point, things began to move rapidly for uh, the establishment of missionary work in, for, for, from America. Um, this kind of reminds you of, you guys remember the testimony of Luther? So, you know, he's not sure, you know, what he's going to do with his life. He's going to be in the ministry or if he's going to be an attorney and his, you know, whatever, and he's out in the middle of nowhere and the storm hits, and he just pleads with God that he will serve him if he would just protect him from this storm. And uh, he's protected by the Lord, and he uh, ultimately you know, chooses to go into ministry because of that specific event. And the Haystack prayer meeting seems similar to that. These people, by happen chance, were, they were not by happen chance, by, by God's sovereignty, met together and prayed right there, and then things began to move rapidly from that point. Um, these people at Williams College also went to seminary at a place called Andover Seminary. Um, they began other societies um, at the universities called the Brethren in the Society of inquiry on missions. And then five recent Andover graduates were ordained as missionaries, and they founded what we call the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. We'll call it the ABCFM. And they went to India. One of these was Adoniram Judson, who's the first main American missionary, most popular, who on his, so they're congregationalists in New England, and these guys take their Greek New Testaments with them on the boat, and they're traveling to India. And on the way, they're Congregationalists, so they believe in infant baptism. As they go over there, Adoniram Judson and one of the other five decide, no, we can't argue that infant baptism is correct. So they become believers in believers' baptism. So they left America as Congregationalists and become Baptists on the way. 
to India. They get to India, and they're like, hey, we, we can't really work together here. So uh, Carrie goes off and meets with um, some of, not Carrie, Judson goes and meets up with some of Carrie's people, and he's actually baptized in India by one of William Carey's um, close associates by the name of William Ward. He submits to believer's baptism at that time. He establishes a new ministry, uh, a new board called the Baptist Triennial Convention, which is na- later named the Baptist Mission Board in 1814. And at that point, he sees that his life's goal is to be a missionary to Burma. So he becomes a missionary to Burma. And prior to going, he spent three years learning the language of the people. And he becomes a missionary for 40 years in Burma. Uh, Dan, just so you all know, some of you all are pretty new, but he did a message on Adoniram Judson probably like two years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Because um, he does that each first week of the year. He does a biographical message about a great Christian hero. And he did Judson. I recommend that to you. It's great. It's amazing to the trials and the endurance that he showed. Um, um, but I don't have time for all that. But it's a great message. You should pick it up. Um, see David at the sound booth. He'll get it for you. Um, so when he went to Burma, Judson had two goals. Number one was to get 100 converts to Christianity. That was one goal. And his other one was to translate the scriptures in Burmese. I took a stab at that. That's the name of the language. I'm going to go with it. Uh, when he died, not only did he translate the Bible, so he fulfilled that goal, and he got his 100 converts. Not only did he get 100 converts, but God, through him, established 100 churches. Um, and over 8,000 people came to Christ during his lifetime. So Burma is now, I think it's Myanmar, is that how you say that? M-Y-A-N-M-A-R? And this is interesting. Myanmar has the third largest amount of Baptists in the world. Amazing, but it's the legacy of Judson. Every year in July, there's a date where the people, the Christians of Myanmar, celebrate Judson Day because of the message that he brought. Um, So that's the third largest amount of Baptists in the world are in Myanmar, behind only the United States and India, which is a testament to potentially Kerry's work that he started in India. So that's amazing. I, I would recommend... Any biography you can ever find in the Adoniram Judson, the message that Dan preached, and I think you'll be challenged and encouraged by that. Uh, not only did you see the establishment of these societies that were banded together by denominations, but you also saw something called faith missions. That's what number 11 is. And an example of a faith mission is the China Inland Mission, which was founded in 1865 by Hudson Taylor. The idea of the faith mission, they weren't tied to any specific church or denomination. Um, And they were established without promises of financial support, and they never asked for money explicitly. Um, And the faith mission that Hudson Taylor started is the missionary alternative to uh, what George Mueller is doing with his orphanages in in England, uh, where they relied upon God to move in individuals to support them. Um, We're going to talk about Hudson Taylor next week um, as we compare missions. But he had a very distinct methodology to how he was going to minister to the Chinese people. He lived from 1832 to 1905. Um, And by the end of the 19th century, this is China pre-communism and all that, 
um, more than half of Protestant missionaries in China um, were from the China Inland Mission. A lot of the initial, even the Roman Catholic efforts to uh, evangelize or to talk about their gospel in China centered around the coast. So that's why it's the China Inland Mission. The, the inland of China had been neglected, but the outside was important to other areas because of its, uh, its riches and trade and stuff like that. But Taylor saw the need to go further inland, and that's when he established the China Inland Mission. In 1895, there were, so Taylor dies in 1905. So this is 30 years into his um, mission work in China. Um, there were 641 CIM missionaries, along with 461 Chinese helpers, and 260 stations. The CIM included um, the famous Cambridge Seven, which little biography, it's in the bookstore. I think I bought it couple weeks ago for $2, so there might not be any left, um, who were uh, missionaries with the CIM. Uh, there's also a biography that we did a few years ago in a men's study about John and Betty Stam, who were missionary martyrs in the 1930s um, at the hands of uh, communist Chinese. Uh, they, were member, they were part of the, uh, the CIM, and so was Eric Little, the Chariots of Fire um, missionary to China. Um, so we'll talk about that next week. But those, the China Inland Mission really made inroads into China, and a lot of believers uh, were uh, converted at that time. Um, so w- what do we see with, in conclusion with the missionary movement of the 19th century? We see the globalization of Christianity. Uh, before now, the faith had, for the most part, been regionalized to Europe and North America, but now it's everywhere, which will make our future studies a little bit more difficult uh, <laughs> as we get past this, because you've got to look at... Ten different con- or seven different continents, um, but today you can really trace back the effects and the successes of the 19th century missionaries to the globalization of Christianity as a whole. And today, the majority of Christians live outside of the traditional Western world. Um, so that's really it's a dramatic shift for the next 100 years of church history, as you see that the church is growing outside of the Western world, and probably should tell us something about the church and the Western world as a whole. Um, so that is that is kind of an overall summary of the 19th century, the emphasis on societies, the establishment of those who were then sending agencies for missionaries and the establishment of faith missions as well. Uh, the next week we'll talk about two missionaries, uh, David Livingston, who is a explorer missionary to Africa, and also um, Hudson Taylor, who is the leaders of the China and Inland Mission and his emphasis on missions work. Um, I hope this blesses you. I would encourage you guys to pick up missionary biographies. Um, they are great, and there's many to look at besides the ones we talked about today. There was, uh, there's John Patton, there's Henry Martin, uh, David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, William Carey, and they are worthy of our emulation, and God used them mightily uh, to change the world. Um, I think that's it, and finished on time. It's great. A couple minutes early. All right. Well, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this day, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, how, uh, for how you've revealed to us how you're building your church, Lord, how you've inspired uh, people, Lord, to give up their all, Lord, to be missionaries for you in foreign lands, Lord. Lord, we praise you because that's a work of your grace in their life, Lord. And just like we um, are grateful for the graces in our life that you provide to us daily, Lord, we praise you for how you used men and used means, Lord, to impact the growth of your church 
And Lord, we love you for that. And it's, a, it's proof that you are sovereignly working to build your church and bringing up people to yourself, Lord. Lord, thank you for this day. Lord, we praise you for the opportunity to be in your house to hear the word preached. And Lord, I just pray that you would be with Brent as he brings the word in the second service, Lord. And I, I pray that you would use it to change hearts, Lord. And uh, thank you so much for the uh, bringing of your word that we can sit under, Lord, that's faithfully preached. In Christ's name we pray, amen.